0: To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old dot-com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org donate. This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. This is Marketplace After the Bell. I'm Scott Jagow, and I'm here to make sense of what happened this week in business and the economy. It's Friday, November 6th. The Federal Reserve is either being wise, stubborn, or foolish about interest rates. This week, the Fed left rates near zero once again. That means investors everywhere are borrowing heavily in dollars and investing it into gold, and in stocks, in oil. Some economists warned this week that all the Fed is doing is creating another bubble. An asset bubble that will pop in our faces just like the housing bubble did. The Fed tells us there's simply no danger of inflation, nothing to worry about here. We need to continue to grease the wheels of the economy. I don't know, it just seems like an all too familiar refrain, one that just got us in trouble. Make it easy to borrow. Speaking of that, Congress has the same idea. Let's make it easier for people to buy homes. This week, Congress extended the first-time homebuyer's tax credit. Not only extended it, but expanded it to include people making higher incomes and people who've owned their homes for five years. I'm finding it a little hard to see much value in that decision. Again, it seems like the government's solution is to make it easier for people to get in over their heads. NPR had a story about how some mortgage companies are taking advantage of the low, low rates that FHA loans offer. And a lot of people are defaulting. But let's not dwell on the negative. How about a golf clap for Ford for surprising everyone and making a profit and doing so without the taxpayer's help? Ford's turnaround plan has worked so far. The only thing to worry about is debt. Ford has a lot of it. GM and Chrysler don't because they went into bankruptcy and shed most of it. So that puts Ford at somewhat of a disadvantage. It'll be interesting to see a couple years from now who's doing better, GM, Ford, or Chrysler. In fact, Chrysler said it would be making money in two years and would pay back the taxpayers by 2014. Ambitious? Yes. But I like the sound of it. Finally, Warren Buffett says he's going all in on the U.S. economy by buying the rest of Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Buffett hasn't gotten to where he is by making dumb decisions, so it's most likely a good omen for the economy. Although it might also be an omen for higher oil prices. Because rail beats trucks and planes in that case. Marketplace providing you what you need to know about business and economics on air and online. Explore everything Marketplace has to offer, from explainers on technical terms to stories on personal finance at Marketplace.org. The White House Budget Director Peter Orszag said this week that the president's goal is to cut the deficit in half by the end of Obama's first term. Wow. It sounds crazy, considering the spending that's occurred this year. But let's talk to someone who knows this stuff inside and out. Diane Lim Rogers is chief economist with the Concord Coalition. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan group that advocates for financial responsibility by government. Diane, cutting the deficit in half by the end of Obama's first term, is that realistic?
1: Well, I actually think that it's not not an unrealistic goal, but we have to keep in mind that this year's budget deficit was... $1.4 $1.4 or trillion, $1.5 trillion. Actually, Congressional Budget Office's current law baseline tells you a lot about what would happen if Congress just closed up and went home, <laughs> and, and the administration didn't sign any new legislation into law because the CBO baseline shows you what is the projected budget deficit under current law. You know, I, I'm looking at a table right now from their latest baseline budget outlook, They're showing that by 2012, we're down to um, a $538 billion Mm -hmm. uh, budget deficit. Uh, So it's a third of the size of this year's deficit.
0: So, Diane, you're saying that if these tax credits and other policies that need renewal were not renewed, that's what that's what would happen.
1: That's what would happen. If we literally stuck to current law, Congress didn't pass any, um, either didn't pass any extensions of these policies or, this is an important or, or if they passed extensions of these policies, offset the cost.
0: But just this week, the Congress yes. approved extending the homebuyers tax credit, which will cost another $11 billion. Uh, it doesn't seem like the willpower I- exists yet to... Stop renewing this stuff.
1: Well, of course, um, if you look at policies like extending unemployment compensation and um, extending stimulus-type tax cuts, most economists would say those should be deficit finance. Those are not the problem because if they're truly temporary, if they're truly designed – counter cyclical fiscal policy designed to stimulate the economy most economists would say of course you need a deficit finance that kind of spending that's the whole purpose it's sort of shifting forward economic activity that would otherwise occur uh, later mm-hmm. to the to the present where we need the boost the the problem that most economists would have about deficit spending is if it's permanent deficit spending or if its commitments to longer-term programs where the cost of deficit financing is not obviously worth it because deficit financing is an expensive proposition. It involves you know, paying interest costs long into the future, and that interest cost compounds over time. Yeah. And we are facing low interest rates now, but everyone expects all the forecasts say that interest rates will have to come up. They're just very unusually low right now.
0: Actually, this week, White House Budget Director Peter Orzag said, as you know, as I referred to earlier, that the deficit would be cut in half by the end of the term, but he gave no specifics on how that would be done. Do you right. have any idea what the administration has in mind?
1: Well, the administration always talks about health care reform first, right? Because in terms of the longer-term budget outlook, it is true that health care spending is our number one challenge. Unfortunately, it's also true that we know the least about what to do about it. You know, we can easily point to it as that's the biggest problem facing us. But if we don't really know enough uh, to create uh, a policy response that we know will work, then that's not necessarily where we should put our greatest effort. There are other things that the administration faces much sooner than the, the really uh, skyrocketing health costs, which will happen over several decades in the future. And the most immediate thing that comes to mind is that the administration will be faced with um, the issue of the expiring Bush tax cuts. All told, President Obama has proposed extending about $2 trillion worth of the Bush tax cuts without paying for them.
0: So the mentality here uh, seems to be that they're going to put off as long as possible the idea that taxes might increase.
1: Oh, it- yes. It's very easy for the administration to use the terms fiscal responsibility, living with, getting back to living within our means. What's very difficult for them to say is we're going to have to raise taxes. <laughs> yeah,
0: of course. They have
1: not uttered the word Taxes. Um, Peter Orzeg has used the word, you know, other the phrase other things, that we may have to <laughs> consider other things. Um, Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, has used the term other factors, uh, or there are factors to consider. Um, I think the administration is very careful to not um, use the words tax increase, and yet I think that that's what they're recognizing they're going to have to. Uh, reconsider uh, the idea that maybe the president 's campaign promises are too difficult to keep, which is that he pledged to not raise taxes on anyone whose income was below two hundred and fifty thousand, mm-hmm. which is ruling out most of the tax base
0: <laughs> right so, so diane what what is it that your group, uh, the conquer coalition what is it that you want Congress and the President to do?
1: We would like, um, at the Conquer Coalition, we are for exactly the size of government that our society is willing to pay for. So, you know, we believe that whatever the public feels um, is worth doing ought to be worth paying for and um, we need to start seeing that Congress and the administration are working on a specific plan a concrete tangible plan to get us back on a sustainable path and that means that Congress and the administration have to start acknowledging that there's no such thing as a painless way to make a tough choice Mm -hmm. you know because President Obama will say we need to get back to making the tough choices and yet everything he proposes doesn't sound like it's tough at all. It sounds like all we have to do is cut wasteful spending, spending that no one really wants anyway, that no one really benefits from anyway. It sounds like we don't need to raise taxes. We only need to consider other factors and things and maybe raise things that are called fees instead of taxes, and maybe it'll be taxing someone else, not me. And I hear that from Congress both sides of the aisle, and I hear that from the administration that lack of courage um that I understand is due to their belief that the American people will reject them if they get specific about the tough choices
0: when in fact it's... when I
1: think it's not the case, I think the American people understand now. That there's no such thing as a free tax cut. There's no such thing as a free spending program. And they've been living within their own sort of lesson of getting back to living within their means. They know what it means to for a creditor to tell them, look, you ha- owe oh, too much money. This is an unsustainable situation. We're taking away your credit line. You're going to have to figure out how to pay your bills as you go.
0: The bottom line is we can handle the truth. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that that I I really do think we can handle the truth and I think that until politicians are better at speaking the truth to the American people, we're not going to get enough feedback from the American people as to what of these tough choices that are none of which are that pleasant, what out of the set of tough choices are you willing to pursue. Mhm. You know, I mean, the the politicians need feedback from the public and they obviously can't get that if they're not talking to the public.
0: Diane Lim Rogers, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Scott.
0: Diane is chief economist at the Concord Coalition. She's also a blogger. You'll find her at economistmom.com. From you. This is Marketplace After the Bell. I'm Scott J. Gow. The people of Ohio have long resisted gambling in their state. Four times in the past two decades, Ohio voters have turned down casinos. But this week, they changed their mind and voted them in to four cities. On Marketplace, we heard from Pentecostal pastor John Coates who had opposed those previous ballot measures.
1: With there being 11% unemployment in our state, there's no way that I could look past the 34,000 jobs that this effort would bring to our state.
0: Ah, the siren's lure of jobs. But let's make this clear. It's not a moral issue. It's an economic one. The benefits of casinos and lotteries are almost always overpromised and underdelivered. What's more, states are getting lazier by relying on this stuff. There's nothing wrong with a little gambling, but many states seem to be in the problem gambler category. They start with lotteries, they go to keno, they go to poker, then they have full-blown casinos. And once their neighbors approve a casino, they've got to have one too. I read a quote from a Kentucky representative commenting on Ohio's vote this week. He said he detests gaming as a source of revenue, but it's the only option besides raising taxes. Really? Really? That's all you got? Gambling or raising taxes? What state capitals might need more than gambling bills is a good dose of critical thinking. That's After the Bell for this week. I'm Scott J. Gow, and I'll be back next Friday to make sense of what's happening in business and the economy. Have a great weekend. Check in my wife, that I just met. She's
1: looking like a wreck casino queen. My lord, you me meet.
0: But I've been gathered like a fiend on your table, so green. American Public Media.